We are talking about Stuff Christians Say. That's the name of our series. And uh, Christians say a lot of things, and sometimes they're confusing to people. I found these kids say the darndest things, don't they, those sweet children? And uh, I knew that I would find some cheesy, funny things that Christians said about the Bible if I looked them up. So here, here goes. A little child said, Moses died before he ever reached Canada. As the offering plate was being passed, a four-year-old said, you don't have to pay for me, Daddy. I'm under five. Uh, it says the, in the Bible, the Lord thy God is one. But I think he is a lot older than that. Jesus enunciated the golden rule, which says to do one to others before they do one to you. I, don't, I think that's, that's, that's right. During his life, Jesus had many arguments with sinners like the Pharisees and the Republicans. And finally, Jesus was a great man. He healed many leopards and even preached to some Germans on the mount. So now, even saying some of these jokes in here, some of you are like, I don't know why that's funny. I don't get it. So there's some irony that I did that when you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't get it, old man. Um, anyway, that is not important. The important thing is that we Christians say things that can be confusing. We say things that use big words, and I'm going to use at least one of them tonight, if not a couple of them, but I'm, I'm going to help you to define them because one of these words in particular, I had never even heard it until I got to seminary, and it's a word that's in some of your Bibles right now, and I'm, there's like a 95% chance that most of you, if you were to read that word in your Bible, you would have a difficult time pronouncing it. You would have no idea what it means, and the only thing that's really a bummer about that is that this word is like the centerpiece of the Christian faith. That's why it's so important, and that's why we need to make sure we understand it. Um, this series, by, So this series is called Stuff Christians Say, and we're going to be looking at different terms, concepts, ideas that Christians say and making sure we know what they mean. And I want to give all credit to the person who thought of this idea, Joanna Tong. Let's hear it for Joanna. Yep, there she is. Um, but I want to start with this. The, the word that we're going to be looking at is atonement. And I'm going to give you another word for that later. Some of you have heard of this word before, but we're going to be looking at the word atonement. There's a fancier word for it that we're going to, I'm going to be teaching you, but atonement is important. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a story. I once heard that uh, there was a professor at Trinity Seminary who said, if I could only have one book of the Bible, like if there was, if you eliminated all the books from the Bible except for one, to be able to sort of capture the most important things about the Christian faith, he said he would keep the book of Romans. That's what he said. He's a Greek professor, okay? Side note, the New Testament was written in Greek. I did not know that until I was probably 20 years old. So you're learning things that I did not know my, most of my you know, childhood. New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. So that's why it's important that he's a Greek scholar because he studies, knows the New Testament. The book of Romans, he said, would, would be, that's it. And he said, if, if I could have only one chapter of the book of Romans, 
to have to sort of be able to, to communicate the most important things of the faith, I would choose Romans chapter 3, is what he said. Okay, which is interesting. If you want to sort of dig into that later, maybe read that later, just because this really smart Greek scholar said that. And then he said, if there was one verse, and only one verse that I could, could, could take, it would be Romans 3, 25. This is very interesting, because most of us would probably have picked John and John 3 and John 3, 16, right? This guy's saying Romans, Romans 3, Romans 3, 25. And he said, if there was one Greek word that I could choose to sum up the Christian faith, he said, it's this word that gets translated atonement, or we're going to get to the bigger word later, and it's the Greek word hilasterion, doesn't matter. But that's interesting, isn't it? I think that's really interesting. I think it's fascinating that this, I've never, I heard it one time in this one random class, and I've never forgotten it, like 20 years ago, and I've always remembered it. So what is that word, right? What is that word? Well, it's that word, atonement, except it's translated into another fancy word, which I had never heard and didn't understand, couldn't believe this is a thing that English-speaking people say, but it's the word propitiation. Say it with me. Propitiation. One more time. Propitiation. All right. So this is a word that we have never heard before. This, like, is the name of a movie. And we've maybe heard what that this one. No, no. mm -mm, What is that? Is that like uh, some what? I don't even know what that would be. Is that the state? I mean, we could have had some fun tonight, like the state of being, you know, prophesied over or like if you get spit on by someone, you get propitiate. Stop propitiating on me. Right. It's not it's not what it is. That's not what it is. I'm going to tell you what it what it means. Um, but I want to read you the verse, Romans 3.25. It says this, God presented Christ as a, and there's that Greek word, some of your Bibles say propitiation, some of your Bibles say sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So I looked at some graphs about just, hey, I do things, you guys, during the week. One of them is I look at graphs. Not very often, but I did this week. Thank you very much. And according to some graphs, the word propitiation really thrived in the 1830s. I mean, people were just flying all over the place. It was like, it was like the, uh, I don't know, what's a popular word today? Lit. It was the lit. It was the lit of the 1830s. People were just like, that's propitiation. I don't know. Probably not. But if you look at the graph, man, 1830s, woo, just everybody. And it kind of, it just a sharp decline after the 1830s. For some reason in 2000, it had a, a little bit of an incline. I'm not sure what that is. But big deal in the 1830s. If you look up propitiation, the definition is this. The act of propitiating. Do you love that when you look up words and they're just like, use it? Okay, so I looked it up further. The act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something. So one way to talk about it would be to say that propitiation is something that you do 
to take someone who is upset with you and make him or her happy again. That would be propitiating someone. So let's just say, for example, so Tegan really wants a pet ferret. That's like her dream, right? That's your, your dream in life. There's a, there's a few other things with that dream. What else is it? Dog and a cat and a ferret. But then you want to like live somewhere special or something. What is it? Hawaii. Live in Hawaii, dog and a cat and a ferret. Okay. That's all she wants. She doesn't ask for much. Just a dog and a cat and a ferret to live in Hawaii. So imagine that somehow, Tegan lives down the street from me. Imagine that somehow she got her, her pet ferret early. Like she didn't even move to Hawaii. She got her pet ferret like this coming week. And she has her pet. And it's like her dream come true, right? And I run over it with my Prius. Let's just, let's just say, you know, a Prius is quiet. It's a quiet. It just sneaks up on you. You don't even know it's there. And boom. And I'm like, I didn't even know. I was sort of like, like, oh, what was I didn't. And I just kept driving, you know, imagine, imagine the horror that Tegan would experience if I ran over her pet ferret. Do you have a, do you have a dream name for your pet ferret or it's just <laughs> Everett the ferret? So imagine I have killed, I've murdered, I've ruthlessly murdered Everett the ferret with my Prius, okay? I find out, I feel terrible, you guys. I feel terrible. I would never mean to run over someone's ferret. I would feel terrible. And imagine that what I did, and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. And I go to the pet store and I buy another ferret. And I go walk down the street this time, not in my Prius, so as not to kill any other of her animals. And I knock on the door and I say, uh, Dino, Lisa, is Tegan there? Because she's up, she's crying. And I'm like, and they're like, yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, mate. Here, come on in. Cheers. Cause he's from New Zealand. And I go in and I'm like, Tegan, I'm so sorry. I killed your pet ferret with my Prius. May Everett rest in peace. Here is a new ferret. I, I want you to have a new ferret. They probably are just the same. Let's be honest. They're just, they're just all ferrets. So come on, get over it. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I'd be like, I know we can never replace Everett. He held such a special place in your heart. But please, please, I hope that this could be something for you. And I don't know how, how she would respond. We can ask her later. But whether she responded positively or not, that would be an act of propitiation. That would be my desire. I have lost goodwill with Tegan, and I'm now trying to regain it by, by uh, buying her a new pet. So... Uh, another word for this is atonement. So I showed you this before. So this, this is, this is just a, we just use this word a lot more. And you might have heard this before, the act of atoning for something. When you atone for something, it's the same idea. You have done something wrong and you want to do something else to atone for the wrong that has been done. So, and what's interesting about this word is the meaning of the word is actually found in the word itself. So it looks like it's spelled at one mint and that's actually like what it means. It means there has been a break. There has been a disunity. And now there, need, there, there, there can be unity again. You can be at one again with this person that there has been a break with. Um, now, the analogy of the ferret, as all analogies do, it breaks down because what we're talking about with God, we're talking about a debt to God that none of us could ever pay on our own. And to understand this, the concept that, that is sort of presented in the Bible is you, you actually have to go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament um, has a whole list of sacrifices of atonement that had to be uh, made because the understanding was that we, God is a holy God and we fall short over and again. And God would provide 
opportunities to be made at one again with him. And there were lists of this. If you do this, then you need to do this, and you need to bring this animal and make this sacrifice. It happened throughout the Old Testament. Why is that, you might say? It is because this understanding is when we fall short, when we sin, we have broken the unity that we had with God. And you can even see that unity expressed in Genesis where God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day. There is a, a, a fellowship and a joy together that has been broken. And God provides the means for that oneness to be made right again. So this happens again and again and again and again. And what you find is it's, it's only a shadow of what is to come. And in that moment, there is unity, but as soon as they leave, as soon as that sacrifice has, has ended, there's something else that needs to be made a sacrifice for again. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. And you see this, some of you might say, well, why can't God just sort of say, ah, it's fine, it's fine. The problem with that is that we want a God of justice. We really do. If you have been wronged, you want justice, right? If your family member has been uh, you know, taken advantage of in some way, it's been killed. You want justice. You want that to be true. You, you, you don't want it when you, you know, when someone sort of, when you're the one that's the bad guy. But we really do want God to be God of justice. So in order for him to be just, he requires a sacrifice to be made so that that oneness can be brought together again. And we're going to look now at the book of Hebrews. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. And the author of the book of Hebrews talks about how um, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were imperfect and always looking forward to when they could be perfect in Jesus. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 11, says this, Every priest stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What he's saying is all of those offerings in the Old Testament were just a shadow of things that come. They were just pointing forward in the way that so many things in the Old Testament were, that even you know, Moses was, was pointing forward to one who would, you know, even though Moses would save his people out of Egypt, that Jesus would save his people for all time. So many types of this throughout the Old Testament. We see this even in Jonah. Jesus talks about how Jonah was a type of Jesus, that he was uh, in the belly of a whale three nights and then goes and saves the, the people of Nineveh. So all of these sacrifices of the Old Testament are preparation for what is to come. When at just the right time, Jesus appeared. Perfect man, taught publicly for three years, lived a perfect life, and then makes the perfect atoning sacrifice. According to Hebrews, according to his own words, he makes the perfect atoning sacrifice, the, the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. It's sometimes confusing, isn't it? I'm even uncomfortable to think of the idea that we are offending a holy God and that, that somehow a holy God needs some sort of sacrifice, right? I'm not saying it's easy to understand, but we need to grasp it if we're to understand who God is. 
It's it's not an it's not just a ah, yeah whatever. God doesn't just, just sort of say whatever. I'm a whatever guy. I'm the kind of guy who's like it's probably fine. It's okay. It's gonna be all. Don't it's it, it's not, that's not how God is. God is not that way. God is a holy God. And when we rebel against God, it is not just fine. It's not just no big deal. We are committing what some people have called cosmic treason, right? We are we are going against our creator, thumbing our nose at him, saying that we don't want to do things the way he has designed them to be done. And when we fall short, there has to be a sacrifice to bring us back to There has to be propitiation or atonement. And Jesus, thankfully, what is amazing about this is that God himself provides the way. All we have to do is receive it. He doesn't ask us to go climb a mountain or to show him how sorry we are or to do anything. Like my propitiation for Tegan was to go buy a new ferret. I don't have to do anything with God. All I have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I, I, I receive your perfect sacrifice for into my life and I and I want to live in response to that. We actually see this this picture of atonement or propitiation throughout literature. We see it in movies all the time. You know, I, I can't I mean just so many things. Just imagine whatever movie you can think of where like there's a lot of times it's a it's a, it's a space movie. The most the most recent one that I could remember was Stranger Things. So Sheriff Hopper if you've not watched Stranger Things, yeah, it's, spoiler alert, it's too late. It's a year ago. So Sheriff Hopper, right, at the end of season three, we think, of course, didn't happen because, you know, and they take us on this terrible journey and Eleven's crying and we're all, like, feeling it. And it turns out, okay, he's, he's not really dead. But we think he's dead, okay? He gives his life. It, it happens so many times. He, he's like, I can't, I can't save, you know. It's either I die or we all die. And so he says, I'm going to do it. And somehow cheaply he gets out of it. Come on. Come on, people. Anyway, the really good literature, it's like it really you really pay the price. Like Laura Dern in whatever Star Wars movie she was in. Right. She like rams into that thing and blows everything up, gives her life so that others can can go free. Um, Armageddon movie from like 20 years ago. Same idea. It's in a lot of movies. You see it coming a mile away where it's like someone realizes they you know, everyone's going to die or they can die. And so they choose to die on behalf of others. The most powerful that I have seen in literature, both in a book and in a movie, which I talked about at the beginning of January, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Obviously, many of you, most of you know, C.S. Lewis wrote this as an allegory to the Christian faith. And you've got Edmund, who is a dirty, rotten little turd who gives up his family for some, for some Turkish delights. Which isn't even that good. If you've had Turkish delight, it's it's not that good. Um, but he's a dirty little sinner, just like me, just like you. And he turns on his family, and for that betrayal, he is, uh, you know, his life. The White Witch demands his life, and Aslan goes to her and says, "I will give my life in exchange for Edmund." And that is, that's, you know, he that's there uh, to point us to Jesus. Aslan is. Jesus. So, and of course, what she doesn't know is that he's going to come back to life and win anyway. Ha ha, sucker, white witch. Uh, I wouldn't call her that because she's terrifying in the movie, right? But anyway, 
I want to end with three things that the atonement does. Three things that the atonement does. The first is that, one, it establishes the fact that once and for all, God is good. Jesus' death on the cross, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, it establishes once and for all that God is good. We can spend a lot of our time wondering and thinking. And every day, in fact, we can sort of look around and at the world and we can sort of go, how's this going for my life today? Is this good or is this bad? And if there's more bad things than good things, we can say, well, this is, this is terrible. God must not be good because I'm having a bad day and he really should you know, do better than that. Or we can do the other and just say, ah, you know, things are going well for me today. So uh, I guess God's good. When we do that, uh, we are missing the point. The point is that the Bible is clear. Life is hard for good people and for bad people, for Christians and for non-Christians, for everyone. There will be pain and suffering. Jesus himself said, in this life, there will be trouble. But he says, hope in me. I have overcome the world. Don't hope in the world. And when we look at the world and when we go, you know, okay, is, is God good or not based on the good things happening to me? You're, you're, you're almost always, unless it just happens to be a good day, there's going to be some reason why you're going to be like, well, this could have gone better. God must not be good. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says that life is hard and God is good and we need to trust him. And the cross is what we can point to. The cross every single day when we wake up, no matter if we're having a great day or a terrible day. And I know I have had some terrible days in my life. I know because I know some of your stories. Some of you have had terrible days, terrible days that you would love, that have have confused you and have made you wonder if God is good. We can't look at those days. We have to look at the cross. We have to look at the atonement. We have to trust that his goodness displayed on the cross is proof enough that he is for us and that he is good. So when you feel forgotten, lost, misunderstood, left out, laughed at, or anything in between, you can't look at your circumstances and wonder whether God is good. You have to look at the cross. That's number one. Once and for all, God is good. That's what the cross proves to us. Number two, it's a reminder that God's grace is free, but it wasn't cheap. Okay, God's grace is free. It is free. It is a free gift to anyone who will say yes to it. But it wasn't cheap. It cost Jesus his life. It, he had to humble himself, become a man, live in basically in poverty, have all sorts of people turn on him, uh, be mocked, be misunderstood, and ultimately be killed and betrayed by some of the people that loved him, he thought loved him the most. His sacrifice is what gains us favor with God. It gains us the ability to be at one, at peace with God again. And knowing that, it's not supposed to make you feel guilty. That's not, we're not supposed to feel guilty for the rest of our lives. But 
A man had to die to pay for your sins. And if we think that grace is uh, free and cheap, then we will live our lives like entitled brats. We'll just live our lives like, yeah, that's right. That's how it works. I deserve this. Everything's about me. Rather, we should live our lives as a grateful sinner, knowing that on our own, we, we can't do it. We can't earn our favor with God. And he has taken care of us. And Jesus has paid that price for us. We should live our lives in gratefulness as a response to the cross. And finally, number three, the cross encourages us to show the same grace to others that we have been shown. When you have been shown incredible mercy, incredible grace, incredible love, it should cause you to say, how can I show that love to someone else around me? And I'm going to close with this um, this parable that Jesus tells. And I'm just I'm not going to have you turn there because parables were meant to be heard. So I'm just going to tell the story. And this is this is in the translation called the message. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. This is in Matthew 18. If you want to look it up later, as he got under, so imagine the king is squaring accounts with his servants. So he's He's going, okay, uh, uh, who owes me what? I, mean, I haven't paid attention in a while. I'm going to figure out who owes me what amongst my servants. So he's squaring up his accounts, and one servant was brought before him who had run up a debt of $100,000. Okay? He couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods, to be auctioned off at the slave market, which was legal back then. That was legal. If, if someone owed you a, 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 that amount of money. You, you, you know, someone who was in charge, they could say, all right, auction them all off. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. It's incredible, $100,000. All right, yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, fine, done. Your debt is, you're free. You don't, you don't owe me a dime. So what does the servant do? The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him 10 bucks. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested, put in jail until the debt was paid. When the other servants saw what was going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, you evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious and put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt. And that's exactly what my father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Jesus is saying, I have shown you so much mercy. You owed me $100,000. And instead of making you pay for it, I said, it's paid. It's paid in full. And instead of responding with gratitude and instead of responding with grace to other people, you went and demanded that someone pay you back just 10 bucks that they owed you. When you have been shown grace, when you recognize that you are a sinner who falls short and cannot do what God requires of you, 
and then you see that that debt has been paid, the appropriate response is to say, I'm going to show that kind of grace to everyone around me. So much of our judgmental hearts, I think, is because we don't understand how much judgment we have faced and have been freed from. We can respond when we're shown that kind of mercy, the mercy that God showed us in making us at one with him again. We can show to those around us. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you that we don't deserve it and you don't ask us to earn it. But you show us mercy on the cross. You have made, you have atoned for our shortcomings by your death on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that even if we don't understand this word, that you were the propitiation for our sins. And that we can live in unity with you now. And I pray that we would, uh, if there's some here who, who don't understand that or haven't ever said yes to that, that they would right now, even now, say yes to you. Help us to show that same mercy that we have been shown to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.